0: Welcome to The New School at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring ecology, culture, and consciousness. I'm your host, Michael Lerner. Join us now for a conversation with Carl Anthony, one of the preeminent thought leaders in environmental justice in the United States, the founder of the Urban Habitat Program, one of the oldest environmental justice organizations in the country, and until recently a program officer at the Ford Foundation. Carl Anthony, welcome to the new school. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. Carl, you've done some really interesting things. You uh, were the founder and for 12 years the executive director of Urban Habitat, one of the oldest environmental justice organizations in the country with a goal of promoting multicultural urban environmental leadership for sustainable and socially just uh, communities. You uh, have edited and published uh, Race, Poverty, and the Environment Journal, which is a leading environmental justice uh, periodical with Luke Cole. Uh, You've been president of the Earth Island Institute, and until recently, uh, deputy director of the Ford Foundation uh, program on community and resource development. Presently, as I understand, you are a visiting scholar and Ford Foundation Senior Fellow in the Department of Geography at the University of California at Berkeley. You've published a lot. You've thought a lot uh, about uh, a wide range of issues. You've taught at Columbia, UC Berkeley, and you are a fellow at the Institute of Politics at the John F. Kennedy School of Government uh, at Harvard. Um, I'd like to start just by asking you what you're working on and thinking about right now.
1: Well, Michael, um, it's an interesting journey. Every time I see you, I remind you that we met a long, long time ago. That's right. In 1963, when you were on leave from Harvard and um, working at the New York Times. And we, in 1963, we, um, a number of us who were involved in the Civil Rights Movement, did a... um, a survey of the land in Harlem and we found a vacant lot, two vacant lots in a, uh, and took over a whole city uh, backyards and created a neighborhood commons and you wrote a story about it in the New York Times That's right. and I still have a copy of that story <laughs> <laughs> um, I, you know, it, it's interesting the French have this saying, the plus a change, the plus le même chose right. the more it changes, the more it stays the same right. and um, I have been working on a book project, which is taking me back to think about the journey that I've taken over my life uh, and and, um, where I am and where we are now. And um, I'm very pleased that you're here from Los Angeles. Um, I consider myself a disciple of uh, Thomas Berry, although I don't think he actually would recognize me, but I've been following his work for a long time. And one of the things that was very interesting to me, Michael, in Thomas Berry's work, in his book *The Dream of the Earth* and in subsequent book *The Great Work*, uh, was this idea of putting the context of our human activities in in the in the context of a larger story of the universe. And um, the first time that I actually uh, kind of grasped how important that was uh, in the 1980s when I first joined the uh, Earth Island Institute and I was trying to make sense out of my own personal journey as, a, as an activist as a, a human rights activist, an activist working for uh, social and racial justice um, and it got to be quite confusing uh, on the one hand hearing about the environment and how important it was to protect um, the, the resources of the planet, and on the other hand, understanding some of the trauma that exists in our communities—the uh, high incarceration rates, the uh, exposure to hazardous waste, um, the struggle for justice, the struggle for economic opportunity—and I, when I first came across the writings of Thomas Berry, and it dawned on me that um, that I and all of us are the end product of. Uh, four billion years of existence on this planet and life suddenly a huge kind of cloud lifted up a certain awareness that in fact there there was a context in which we could actually look at our work and see it in relationship to, uh, to all of the universe and all of life on the planet. And that's what I've been thinking about.
0: You gave a talk, I believe, a year ago to the Teilhard Association in New York on Mm -hmm. the 100th uh, anniversary of Teilhard's uh, Mm -hmm. death or
1: birth. Uh, Yeah, I think it
0: was, yeah. 100th anniversary of Teilhard de Chardin's uh, uh, life. And uh, you talked about cosmology and race, uh, reflections on your personal story. What were those reflections? What what did uh, what was this transformative impact of uh, well, the, Thomas uh, Berry's work, which of course is in the Teilhard tradition? Right. The, um, the, the
1: The nature of life on the planet changed very radically at the beginning of the European expansion, and a um, uh, great trauma uh, happened uh, among the uh, descendants of. Uh, African peoples uh, who were stolen from their native lands and brought across in the Middle Passage and forced to work um, in the new world. And um, uh, that that trauma, which is still with us, uh, and there's a great deal of denial around that among the uh, particularly the sort of dominant culture in the US. Um, and I have been struggling, and many of our colleagues have been struggling with what to make how to make sense of this. And yet, as we look at this 500 years of struggle, it is a tiny, 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 tiny period of time measured against the immense evolution of the universe. So it was a relief on the one hand to see that there was a much larger context. And even though we're involved on a day-to-day basis with the minutia of survival and, and horrible things and the wonderful things that happen in our daily lives, I think putting it in this larger context was something that was a, a great meaning to me. I also found that as I talked to and struggled with uh, various colleagues, uh, each of whom had their own particular journey and their own life cycle, and uh, that suddenly by thinking about this in a larger ter- term, we realized that we had a common ground that is in a sense much more immense uh, than some of the shorter term thinking that we've been involved with. Thomas
0: Berry sometimes describes himself as a geologian instead of a theologian, and geography has been a, a core interest of yours for a very it has long been. time. How did you come to that? Did it start in when you were a child, or did it come later? Well, it
1: did actually start when I was a child. I had a, a, a wonderful teacher in the third grade. Uh, her name was Mrs. Aikens, and I Where skipped— Where was this? This was in Philadelphia. Yeah. And um, I skipped uh, grade 2B, which then made me feel very special. And I, when I went into this third grade class as teacher, uh, had a science club. And in that science club, um, she taught us a, a great many things which I are still work with. Um, she taught us to, um, about the dinosaurs and the trilobites, and we learned where those uh, ancient creatures had traveled around Philadelphia, the area of Philadelphia, <laughs> um, you know, millions of years ago. And she taught us about the constellations and. The, Stars and the trilobites, and she taught us about um, uh, different types of um, uh, land and rocks, uh, the difference between sedimentary rocks and igneous rocks. This is third grade. I'm, you know, I can remember it as if it was five minutes ago. Um, and we had to identify all the trees in Philadelphia, not only by the shape of the leaves but also by the bark. Uh, and this, so this was a powerful, uh, you know, uh, uh, beginning point for me. But as I grew older and got very much involved in the struggles for racial and social justice, some of that actually kind of began to fade. And um, uh, when, when I joined Earth Island Institute, David Brower, who was the founder, invited me to join the board um, because of my interest in um, social and environmental justice, um, I was surrounded by people who continued to talk about the earth uh, from, a, from a holistic point of view and talk about the land. And I was troubled by this because I wanted to know what was my relationship to the land. Not only what was my relationship as an individual who experienced the land, but what was the experience of my African-American ancestors who had worked the land for 10 or 12 or maybe even 15 generations in North America who were completely invisible in the environmental movement. And as you know, uh, Aldo Leopold wrote this wonderful book about the land ethic. And I kept asking myself, where do I belong? Where where do I fit in this land ethic if my ancestors had been working the land for 15 generations and they totally were invisible? And so I've been preoccupied with that question for a long time.
0: And where did you discover you do belong?
1: Well, I'll tell you, it's really funny. Uh, I was reading this guidebook uh, uh, for Tennessee and there was a description of the Appalachian Mountains in this guidebook. And I came across this passage, which just a very fleeting passage in this. Uh, and it said, well, you know, actually, the reason that these mountains are here was because 350 million years ago, Africa collided with North America. Oh. <laughs> and this was, oh, my God, what is this about? And, um, and then I began to see that there was something that I had to pay much more attention to than I had paid attention to. And those of you who know anything about the sort of uh, uh, evolution of the of the um, continents will know that 350 million years ago there was one huge continent called Pangaea which which really means one one land or one earth and that that continent began to break apart and uh, the land masses started swinging around and then for some uh, for some reason Africa, Proto-Africa and Proto-North America started separating. And then there was a reversal, and there was this huge collision between Africa and North America that produced the Appalachian Mountains that went from Maine all the way down to Georgia, that crumpled up the interior of North America. So you can see across uh, Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, and Texas, a big crumple uh, where the land goes through the Ozark Mountains and all the way over to the Balcones Escarpment was crumpled up because of this collision between Africa and North America. And I said, oh my God, I really have to learn something about this. And it was a tremendously important point for me. Uh, And I have been preoccupied with the meaning of that. You know, Thomas Berry said that we, in order to understand where we are now, we have to understand the evolution of this continent. And I began to see that the relationship between Africa and North America was a much older and a much deeper and much more significant set of impacts than the ones that we had learned about uh, as I was growing up.
0: So as you have reflected on, on those questions, uh, where did it take you internally? How did uh, your sense of who you are and what your mission is in this life evolve?
1: Well, you know, there's, there's, there are some funny things that happened to me. Uh, you know, sort of thinking of myself, in relationship to this great historic event, prehistoric event. And then I had an experience actually with my friend Paloma. We were in the, the um, Los Angeles museum and we met uh, the, uh, a docent there who was telling us about the dinosaurs. And um, this was about six or eight years ago. And he was explaining to us how this um, uh, uh, asteroid was 11 miles wide crashed into Yucatan and made a big hole in the ground and sent dust all over the planet and led to the destruction of the, um, of the dinosaurs. And this was 65 million years ago. And I got really into this. I mean, I was running around like, have you heard the news? It <laughs> <laughs> was this asteroid, and, you know. Um, and I, everywhere I went, I was you know, trying to explain. And What was really important to me is that twice In my lifetime, there's been this huge revolution in geology. The first time was the acceptance of the theory of plate tectonics, uh, which people rejected for a long time. In 1968, which was a really important revolutionary movement all over the world in terms of social and political transformation, but it was also a moment when this theory of plate tectonics became accepted. And then the second time with this idea that there was an asteroid from outer space would hit so I would go around everywhere and say, "Hey, have you just have you heard the news? It was this asteroid, sixty-five million years ago." Until I ran into my sister-in-law, who teaches elementary school, and she said to me, "Well, you know, we've been teaching that for the last ten years in third grade." So, that was, <laughs> so that was. But uh, uh, what what it what it, one of the things that it's done is it liberated me. Uh, although I'm still very much involved and preoccupied with the issues of race and justice, and I and I think that that the issues of justice are really central to how we think about ecology. Um, It has sort of lifted lifted my spirits because I could see that uh, many of the struggles we've been involved in have been struggles around blind people leading the blind and that we need to have this kind of larger vision so we understand that humanity at this point is undergoing a transformation that is perhaps as important as the transformation the most important transformation in the last 65 million years, and we're witnessing it and we're called upon to act in that context. And so all the struggles that we have around justice and around ecology need to be put into that context.
0: When you describe the end of the age of dinosaurs 65 million years ago, it brings to mind, of course, that the current age of extinctions is is the greatest since that last great extinction. that climate change, toxic chemicals, habitat destruction, invasive species, and of course, what's happening to humanity, uh, is is really in play at a level that never has been before in human history. Uh, you and I—you mentioned uh, that we met almost 50 years ago, and I was <coughs> reflecting that uh, our lives started before the end of World War II and that we witnessed uh, uh, Kennedy and Martin Luther King, the civil rights movement, Vietnam, the women's rights movement, the environmental movement, the gay rights movement, the rise of environmental justice, and then the Reagan revolution and uh, its current manifestation and our current uh, president uh, and the rise of radical Islam as well. And so it's been a 50 year period in which we've witnessed the the rise and the beginning of the decline of uh, American hegemony, in many respects. Um, And uh, at the same time, we've witnessed, it seems to me at least, this vast uh, multinational, multicultural movement for the earth, for health, for the environment, for justice, for the equality of race and gender. So it seems to me both of us are at that point in our lives where part of our task is reflecting on what our experience has been in the hope that there is at least some paltry wisdom that we can contribute to those who are carrying these struggles forward. So I wanted to ask you, in view of this this vast panorama that you've described that your third grade love of geography has brought to you and your following of it ever since, uh, what is the story that you tell yourself about the history of our time and uh, including but going even beyond the issues of environment, race, and justice. How do you interpret the story?
1: Well, I I have to tell you, I I am quite optimistic. Um, And uh, in some ways, I view this um, great turning, as Joanna Macy calls it, as also a great opportunity. It's a tremendous opportunity, a second chance, really, to get it right. And I talked with my friend uh, Belvi and Dedan quite a bit about the challenges the African-American people are going through in North America right now. And there's a profound, uh, symbolic, sort of metaphorical connection between at least my perception of the crisis of the African-American community at this point and the crisis of... Uh, extinctions that are going on over the planet because in many ways we are facing the extinction of African American culture as we sit and as we talk Uh, and paradoxically that threat is a result in part of the success of the civil rights movement that is there are few people who manage to do quite well and sort of blend into the woodwork and then there's a very large segment of our community that's being left behind And so we have a new challenge of leadership. And in my view, the challenge of leadership of the African-American community is very symbolic of the challenge of leadership of all of us. And that is that we have to find a way to hold the communities that we care about the most and to embrace the struggle of those communities that we care about the most and put it in the context of the larger species survival of the human race and put that in the larger context of, of life uh, on the planet as we have known it and this is really a tremendous challenge but it's also a tremendous opportunity to rethink almost everything that we've learned uh, in our lifetimes and also everything we've learned from the cultures that we've inhabit, inherited um, and i talk with belvey quite a bit about this belvey rooks about this about how um as african as descendants of african people and uh, African-Americans are actually not only descendants of African people. We, most of us have Native American blood, and most of us also have European American blood, and quite a few also have Asian blood. So in some ways, we carry within us, as most people do, in fact. And, you know, as we look around the room here, uh, it would not necessarily come as a shock to the people around the room that we're all, in some really fundamental sense, African-Americans. At least the, the the current theory about the evolution uh, of the human race in Africa some two million years ago from the hominoids that then descended from the trees and so forth, gives us all the kind of common heritage. But we have, a, we have this tremendous opportunity and uh, we also have this tremendous set of incentives to rethink solidarity, to really embrace each other. Uh, and, and in the context of embracing each other embrace all of life on the planet and provide some guidance for how our communities and our civilization evolves as we meet this new challenge. At least that's the way I think about it.
0: I wonder whether that connects with the chapter that you contributed to Theodore Rojak's book, Eco-psychology on Deconstructing Whiteness. Could you say a little about what your argument was there and whether that does connect with what you said? Well,
1: it it does, in fact. I, I am uh, I was very interested in the story. Uh, I'm, I'm actually a history buff, although that's not my main preoccupation. But I, but I happen to be quite interested in how um, how some of our conceptions of who we are evolved on this planet. And I was surprised to learn that before Bacon's Rebellion, which happened in uh, in the 16 around 1675, there were no white people. Mm-hmm. There were no there were no such thing as white people. The European Americans, who the Europeans who showed up in North America, generally referred to themselves in relationship to where they had come from. So there were people who considered themselves English or uh, Dutch or, or French. Were uh, sometimes they referred to themselves as Christians uh, and referred to the uh, indigenous people here as savages. They did not. It's interesting. They didn't refer to themselves as white people. Uh, and of course, the, the idea of solidarity among white people would have not made much sense when you consider the history of Europe. All these different people have been fighting each other and killing each other for you know for generations. So they arrive in North America in Virginia at a moment in which there's some threats to these handful of uh, settlers about the indigenous people. And the, uh, a man named Nathaniel Bacon uh, organized the settlers uh, who were at that point were both African and European to help promote security and he actually almost threw overthrew the government of Virginia the British government of Virginia Virginia and when bacon's rebellion was put down the aristocracy decided this would never happen again and so they created a, a an innovation in jurisprudence and they used the word to describe these European settlement, settlers as white uh-huh. it was the first time that word was used in in the legal terminology in North America. And that integrated the, all the different people from Europe against the native people and also against the African people who then at that point were reduced to slavery. So, so this idea of whiteness is really relatively new. It's only a couple of centuries old. And yet it's really interesting how people have come to think of that as a primary identity in, when in fact it's only quite recent. And I tried to show that when, in that particular interview where uh, a number of my colleagues considered themselves deep ecologists and who were interested in uh, um, developing more of a bond with nature and more of a bond with uh, animals and the trees and the plants and the rivers and the mountains, how paradoxical it would be if one were able to succeed in that and still hold on to the sort of sense of identity of being white. So what I saw is almost by definition, if you were a deep ecologist, you would have to give up this white identity, and also be part of a uh, of a multicultural human community that was connected to this larger world.
0: One of your great vocations has been uh, as one of the thought leaders in environmental justice, and the environmental justice movement has gone through many transformations, uh, and there appears at least. Uh, to this observer, to be a very strong early African-American dimension. There's a Latino dimension. uh, There's a Native American dimension. uh, There is the whole uh, new Asian diaspora, especially the South Asian diaspora, uh, with many South Asians playing uh, important contributing roles now. Um, As a scholar activist and thought leader in environmental justice, how would you describe that history of environmental justice from where it began and where it finds itself now and what you see the new challenges as being? Well, it,
1: it is a global movement. Yes. It's, uh, it's not only uh, all over the uh, in the developing world but also there are uh, branches of the environmental justice movement now in Russia and various parts of Europe, Eastern Europe uh, and, and in fact there are questions of justice and I, I was talking to a colleague of mine in, in um, uh, in West Berkeley, who lives in a neighborhood of mostly European Americans, and they're really concerned about the pollution that's coming from a, a, a local plant there. And uh, they're complaining that um, this plant is you know is producing uh, problems for them in those communities. It's very difficult to breathe. and they want they ask me as well, this is a European community, but it doesn't seem to us, as being fair. They asked me, is this environmental justice if, if white people can't breathe? Um, <laughs> well, I, I said, yeah, it is. it is. It turns out that this particular plant, this Pacific Steel, had just gotten the contract to help build the new Bay Bridge. And in this particular neighborhood, uh, the burden of that industrial activity is falling on the people who happen to live around that. And it's not fair that they should not be able to breathe so that we can drive across the bridge Uh, so so in my view is that it is an environmental justice issue in fact it's really about fairness and um, so I think it's been a huge explosion Um, and uh, there are many many dimensions to that I and um, I'm actually Mm -hmm. proud to be a part of it of course if you think again historically the the struggle of environmental justice which most recently started with a protest against some uh, toxic pollutants in a um, Uh, uh, a PCB plant in Warren County, North Carolina, Uh, 500 African Americans protested against the siting of this hazardous waste facility in 1983. That's been sort of considered the genesis point of the environmental justice movement. But actually, uh, if you think about justice in a broader sense, and environment in a broader sense, uh, I would trace its beginning at least back to the European expansion and colonization of people all over the world. And so many people in, in, in Southeast Asia and in Africa and in, uh, in Latin America and uh, the, indeed the indigenous people consider environmental justice to be a, a brand that they can, a, 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 a kind of program that they can really interpret the meaning of many things beyond toxic pollution.
0: We'll be right back after a short break. I want to go back for a moment just because you took us back to Philadelphia and your third grade class teacher. And so I'm taking this uh, sort of out of the order that I've been following. But could you tell us a little about how you grew up and uh, what kind of family you came out of that uh, shaped your whole experience of your life?
1: Well, I think it's very interesting that childhood, um, I have to tell you a really quick, uh, story about this, I mentioned, the, um, I mentioned the collision between North America and Africa that produced the Appalachian Mountains, mm-hmm. and one of the things that are produced along the uh, eastern border of the United States, the coastal plain, there's something called the fall line, where all the rivers um, come to waterfalls and then empty into the coastal plain and in the Atlantic Ocean, and all along the fall line, uh, this is where the plantations were located, because. The ships were brought in and you could you wouldn't have to unload the ships uh, you, that's as far up as you could get. And so they developed the plantations uh, along this. And this was also the place where the Trail of Tears started. Mm-hmm. So I made this huge effort to try to go to this fall line and stand there and sort of see, now what does this really mean? I went to this place in Georgia where the Ansi River happens. And it took me... Um, all day to try to get to, I had to go through a garbage dump and a sewer plant and all this to get to this place. And at the end of the day, I couldn't, I couldn't find the place. And on the way back, um, I passed something called the Fall Line Pawn Shop. So I figured, oh, what the hell, I'll go Let <laughs> me go in and find out what, you know, what, so I walked in, I tried to pretend like I had something to, to uh, sell. And then I talked to the, owner, and I, we struck up a conversation, and I said to him, you know, it's a strange name, why do you call yourself the Fall Line Pawn Shop? And he said, oh, well, a hundred million years ago, the ocean came right up to this spot, and so that's why we, it turned out this guy was a descendant of all these plantation owners. Now, I'm telling you the story, because after all this effort, uh, when I went back and looked at the map of where I was born, I was born on the Fall Line. Mm-hmm. I was actually born in a place in Philadelphia called the bottom which was originally a swamp and it had been filled in the poor people were forced to live in the bottom in Philadelphia and black people all the prostitutes and all the things that were considered bad were located in this place and that was where I was born and in fact all over the country uh, you can see it in Richmond you can see it in many places places called the bottom is where, um, is where many in many cases African-Americans live partly by choice and partly by, um, because of the discrimination. By choice, because they could be left alone and do what they want to do. by Because of discrimination, because of the history of not being allowed to live in other communities. So I was born in this place in Philadelphia. uh, And it was the most run-down place um, that I could imagine. Since then, I've seen a few places that are worse. And then after the war, my parents saved up enough money to move to a better neighborhood and we grew up in this better neighborhood in West Philadelphia and, um, and as I was thinking about the house that I grew up in, I grew up in this huge ten-room house, Queen Victorian with bay windows and a front porch and I realized that when we moved to this house the well-to-do white people had moved out first so we ended up in this really fabulous neighborhood um, that the wealthy black white people moved out of, and we were actually in a much more privileged neighborhood than many of the poor and working class white people. I didn't really realize realize this until a few years ago as I began to think about it. So I grew up in Philadelphia. Uh, We were one of the first African Americans to move into this neighborhood that was a otherwise mixed income neighborhood. And in many ways, it was a fabulous neighborhood. Mm -hmm. I went to an integrated elementary school uh, we were only a handful of black people in the elementary school I went to. And my father, who was a Garveyite and then followed Booker T. Washington, made me go into the school which was mostly filled with children of immigrants from Eastern Europe and Southern Europe and uh, uh, you know Italians and Greeks and Jewish people. And he made me tell them stories of Frederick Douglass and And I realize, you know, Frederick Douglass and Mary McLeod Bethune. Fair
0: growth and smart growth, Uh, where
1: I believe you said,
0: somebody said, and I think it may have been you, that uh, zoning laws uh, were the civil rights issue.